All right. Hi there. Welcome to Dr. Doctor, your biweekly debrief with your best friends in medicine. This is your host, Griffin Reed. And today we have a very special guest, Oyan Perkiasta. And Oyan, one of the things that we share together is that we're on a kick-ass intramural basketball team together. (laughs) Um, So our basketball team is called the Doughboys. And it is comprised of um, essentially internal medicine residents. How would you describe the position that you play on our team? You know, I didn't know what to expect when I first joined the Doughboys, but man, we are a competitive bunch. <laughs> and I love it. <laughs> um, yeah. So let's talk about our first game. We played I a team name unrecallable, but it was a bunch of like college, definitely oh, not. Oh, they must have been like freshmen. Yeah. Maybe sophomores. Yeah. We walked out there for everyone who doesn't know, I'm like six feet, eight inches tall. I played with Oyan before. We're a couple of ballers. We're pretty we're pretty good. We tear up the local um like public basketball lots when we go and play some pickup games. We walked out onto this court, and I'm looking down at the other end, the team that we were playing. They were about all five feet, six inches tall. <laughs> like, they probably weighed like 100 pounds a piece. And I was like, we're going to decimate these kids. This is going to be an embarrassment of a basketball game. <laughs> and it was so... It was a dogfight. It was yeah. so close. Back and forth the whole game. How would you describe their their playing style? Like, what would tell us about tell the audience about the game? Uh, well, remember, I think the first thing we noticed was that their team probably was like ten or twelve deep, yeah. and we got I think five people at the last second to come. Me, yes. you, a couple other resident residents, and then Phil Chan, one of our attendings. Yeah, <laughs> and so we were like, all right, we just gotta get up big and hold the lead as they have the fresher legs. They're younger. Um, You know, if we get out to a 15 point lead or something, we should be able to coast. And I think we were down by like 10 or 12 points within the first six minutes of the game. Their three point shooting was unbelievable. It was like everything. Yeah. It was like we were playing three Steph Curry's on that other team. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They were shooting the lights out and then, I don't even recall how we ended up. We just scrapped our way back into the game. Mm-hmm. Rebounds, hustle. Like, yeah. I was, think at yeah. one point we realized that you were probably a foot taller than <laughs> everyone else on their team. So it was like, all right, we're just going to get the ball to Griffin. He's either going to score or he's going to get fouled. And <laughs> that's how we're going to get our way And back. miss both of his free throws. <laughs> <laughs> I think there was a point where I... Really, we, we were just trying to get the balls into my hand to, so that we could pass it to everyone else because the entire defense would collapse to me and when I touched the ball. And I think there was at one point where I was like quadruple teamed. <laughs> now, I think we literally ran the four out offense to perfection. It was like, <laughs> just give the ball to Griffin. Immediately, all five people on their team would go up into him and then... Either one of us was open or they would foul him, and it, it worked out. Big shout out to Phil Chan, who is probably, I think he said that he's 40 years old now, mm-hmm. and oh my gosh, that dude is in good shape. He oh, was yeah. running the court. Like, it was it was impressive. Yeah. Keeping oh, up with man. all those I, I hope those I hope those kids realized what a legend they were playing with. Phil, <laughs> Phil Chan, yes. who 
does the Rhode Island Department of Health uh, um, Spotify commercials about the COVID-19 vaccine. Oh, wow. I didn't even know that. That's incredible. He's such a, he's a very cool dude. Um, Cool. Uh, Well, with that being said, uh, we will see you on the other side of the intro song. Stay tuned for a little bit of talk about medicine with Oyen Perkayasta. Um, very excited here uh, to be here today with Oyen, um, one of my co-residents, and has the honorary privilege of being the first second-year resident on this podcast. So oh, let's go! C- congratulations, <laughs> Oyen! Is that, what a huge accomplishment! Oh, man, it's an honor. You can put your you can put that on your resume for uh, next year when you're applying to fellowship. And the area of medicine that I happen to know that you're interested in is cardiology, mm-hmm. um, so medicine of the heart. Um, I was wondering if you could kind of uh, give us an overview. What are the different types of heart doctors that are in the hospital? Yeah, so it's a really broad field. And, you know, coming out of med school, I knew a few of the fields, but then there was like so much more that I learned about in residency. So most people think of their general cardiologist who, um, you know, sees them for their, you know, cholesterol, if they've you know, had like, you know, heart disease is generally the person that they'll see once a year. Um, And, you know, they're a generalist and they see a wide variety of patients. But then, you know, even in the field itself, you get, you know, much more specialized. You have your interventional cardiologists who are the uh, guys that will place those stents for heart attacks in the middle of the night. They're, you know, always ready to go, always, you know, always on call. Then you have your know heart failure doctors who are great at managing you know heart failure getting patients that have heart failure on the right medications you have your electrophysiologist the uh you know the electrical guys the rhythm guys who uh you know focus on things like atrial fibrillation and atrial flutter and you know make sure that you know they're on the people are on the right medications for that but then also do really cool procedures like ablations for atrial fibrillation for people that have really symptomatic disease and ablation is essentially just like burning or otherwise like pretty much altering the heart tissue to make sure that the electrical circuits work the way that yeah they like map out in it's on a screen in front of you like where the different um you know areas that uh you know rhythm might be coming from and then they literally just burn it it's really cool to see that's awesome that's so cool are there and then what's i always hear talk about structural like oh we need to talk we need to talk Mm. to structural who who are they what do they do yeah so i actually i didn't know very much about structural probably until my like end of my fourth year medical school but you know those are the guys that put in the uh you know the catheter aortic valves now that have become a big thing they do a lot of the you know cool procedures that have to do with um you know, like a septal ablation, for example, that for people that have like, you know, congenital hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, it's it's a really cool growing field. I didn't know too much about it up until residency. So hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, that's like those 
often young athletes who like collapse on the field. Um, that's probably what that's most famous for, huh? Yeah. I think the most famous story probably around here was, uh, Reggie Lewis back in the early nineties was, a no all-star um you know basketball player with the Celtics who um was practicing one day and just suddenly collapsed and died and when they uh you know found out the cause of death later they realized that he had hypertrophic cardiomyopathy so that's basically if you think of the the heart as like the four chambers there's the two atria on the top those are the littler kind of rooms of the heart and then there's the two big ventricles on the bottom the problem with hypertrophic um, obstructive cardiomyopathy is that the area between the two big ventricles on the bottom gets thicker and then sometimes can block the outflow from the left ventricle, which is really the powerhouse of the, the heart. So that stops blood from getting to everywhere in the body except the lungs, essentially. So um, obviously you can understand why that would be a huge issue to have that blocked. <laughs> um, so I, I think that they're starting to do a lot more screening for the hypertrophic cardio, um, uh, cardiomyopathy. Is that right? I think so. Yeah. Especially in, um, you know, sports and people that play you know, college sports mm-hmm. and then ultimately go on to the NFL, um, NBA, MLB, they, they do screen for a lot of congenital heart disease now. Yeah. And that kind of brings us to the second point, which is there are a lot of interesting tests that you can do with cardiology too. One of which is the ultrasound, which is kind of the mainstay of screening for this structural defect that we're talking about right now. So basically just using sound waves to map out um, the heart, kind of like they use those sound waves to map out oil fields and stuff like that too. So um, that's, uh, there are basically two different types of ultrasound. There's the TTE which is the transthoracic echocardiogram goes from the outside of the chest wall. Um, one main problem with that is it's kind of hard to get a picture through the ribs sometimes. Um, so you're a little bit limited in what you can see. And then there's the transesophageal ultras, um, echocardiography. Uh, so that's like, kind of like we were talking about last week with, um, uh, putting a camera down the throat, uh, to look at the stomach. They can actually, put an ultrasound probe down the throat and get an unobstructed uh, ultrasound picture of the heart. Uh, The main thing that I know we use the TEE for the esophageal one is looking for uh, like heart valve vegetations. Um, But do you know of anything else that TEEs are used for, Oyan? Um, Yeah, I think the main thing we think about is, you know, looking at, you know, a clear picture of the valves that's, you know, not being obstructed by, you know, the ribs or, you know, that's, li- that's limited by you know, certain other issues that may come up with the transthoracic echocardiogram. Um, but yeah, looking for, um, you know, if there's any specific valvular issues, if there's a blood clot on in the, uh, in the valve, that's something that you can see pretty clearly. Mm. Um, you know, also, we worry about infections in the heart valve like that's something that you can much more clearly see with the esophageal echocardiogram endocarditis yeah yeah infectious endocarditis so yeah that's there's so many cool tests so there's ultrasound there's of course the ekg Mm -hmm. the classic yeah give me an ekg stat (laughs) (laughs) um and Really what the EKG does is just show kind of an, a, a picture of the electricity, um, the electrical uh, movement through the heart. 
this was interesting, but I didn't, I didn't actually know this. The way that they first did EKGs, they had patients like stick their hand in a bucket of water and then stick both their feet in a bucket of water. Yeah. And then they measured the basically electrical changes between those pools, <laughs> pools of water. Yeah. I think it was uh, Eindhoven back in wow. like, oh my the God, early what a 1900s. What yeah. a pull. And even, yeah, over 110 years later, it's still, you know, we have all of these like fancy know imaging modalities and you know tools and procedures we can uh do in cardiology but you know the ekg is still you know your mainstay and the amazing thing about the ekg too is it can tell you so much about a heart so for instance it can tell you how fast the heart is going which granted you can usually Mm -hmm. feel that just with like a peripheral like feeling somebody's wrist their radial artery um but it can also tell you about um Different waveform changes can tell you about elect changes in the elect the way that electricity is moving through the heart. So there's things like um, a right bundle branch block or a left bundle branch block. So really targeting, you know, you can see changes in some of the major highways of electricity throughout the heart. Um, and then uh, it can tell you about different heart rhythms. So atrial fibrillation, AFib being kind of the classic one in a regularly irregular rhythm mm-hmm. uh, that can sometimes go very fast. You know, I had a grandpa, Kermit, which is, <laughs> which is just a classic Scandinavian name. But um, I had a grandpa who, uh, you know, he in his 60s and 70s had a heart rate that would go up to the 160s and 170s when he's just at rest so that's obvious i mean i can barely get mine up there when we're playing our basketball games um so uh so yeah atrial fibrillation is a classic and then of course myocardial infarction yeah and the fascinating thing about that is you know uh ekg can tell you exactly where the uh heart attack is happening um you know what what part of the heart it's happening, what, you know, chambers or what areas are being involved in it, you know, really helps guide our, you know, the interventional colleagues as to like where to go and where they think the issue is. And so just how much information you can get from a strip of paper. Yeah. And that's the thing, like having that guidance is really important because when they're trying to place these emergent stents during like a, um, in a, in a case of an MI, a, a heart attack, um, time is myocardium, time mm-hmm. is tissue, as they say. So the longer that that tissue goes without blood flow, the more heart cells that you're losing and the more uh, ultimate damage that there's going to be. Um, so that brings up a really good point. I feel like this is one of the things that the, you know, the general public hears about all the time, heart attacks. Mm-hmm. But it took me, you know, even into, I'm still learning more about them all the time. Um, so can you Take us through, in general, what is a heart attack, Oyen? Yeah, so when we think of your classic heart attack, um, you know, the way I think of it is that, you know, you're having damage being done to the tissue of your heart, um, and, you know, there's many different things that can cause a heart attack, um, but, you know, the heart has its own blood vessel supply called the coronary arteries, and each of the coronary arteries uh, supplies a different area of the heart. Um, when we classically think of a heart attack, we think of um, you know something most commonly uh, you know, plaque from atherosclerosis or um, 
know fatty disease of our um of our blood vessels that gets dislodged and then you know gets stuck in the coronary artery somewhere and blocks blood flow from getting to that heart tissue and then you know when you're not getting blood flow and you know oxygen and nutrients and all that to you know tissue it starts to it starts to die and you know that's what classically causes the chest pain that people say the most common dis- um, description I've heard is, you know, it's like, you know, there's an elephant sitting on my chest, you know, it's something that's like squeezing and crushing. And so, you know, that's what we commonly think of a heart attack. Um, the way the way that I like to think about it a little bit, I'm a, I'm a rural guy. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in the middle of nowhere. And there's all sorts of farmland around us. So when you're driving past a farm field, there's these big sprinklers that mm-hmm. are watering the fields, right? If you have a blockage in any piece of that sprinkler system, water isn't going to get to that part of the pipe and it's not going to be able to water the field. The field's going to dry off and the crops are going to die in that area, right? Yeah. So um, the uh, you know irrigation system in this example is like the coronary arteries and then any sort of blockage um, would be usually some sort of plaque um, in yeah. there. And then you can also have the other thing that happens where, you know, using your analogy, you have, you know, not a full blockage, but it's you know, pretty severely narrowed and, you know, you're getting some water across, but you're not getting enough across to your crops. And, you know, that still ends up causing your crops to, you know, get weaker and ultimately die. And, you know, you can have the same thing happen in the heart where, um, you know, you have a pretty severe blockage of your coronary artery, not a complete blockage, but a pretty severe blockage. And that can also cause tissue death as well. So are we able to see all uh, heart attacks on EKGs, Oyan? Um, No, it's really, it really depends on how early things um, start to happen. Um, you know, with heart attacks as, you know, when you first have that tissue start to die, if it's within minutes, you may not see any changes in the EKG. But then as you start to see, you know, more of that tissue death, you'll start to see your, you know, common changes that we see in our EKG. And how we typically, um, you know, classify heart attacks is you have your, you know, STEMI versus your NSTEMI. So the STEMI we call an ST elevation myocardial infarction. That's the badass. That's, that's like the, that is the emergency. Mm-hmm. That's the one we typically think of where, you know, you have an entire part of a coronary artery that's blocked and that'll, um, you know, cause a classic, um, you know, classic finding on the EKG where there's a certain segment of it that's pretty elevated um, above normal. And what's cool about that is based on what part of the EKG you see those elevations and the waveforms that can help you figure out exactly which part of the heart is, you know, under attack and which coronary arteries involved. Yeah. And like we were talking about before with time being tissue, uh, when we talk about these STEMIs, um, that's one of the actually quality measures that hospitals are graded on. Mm -hmm. Um, so for each of these heart attacks, there's something called door to balloon time. And that's basically from when the patient moves through the, through the doors of the emergency department until they, uh, have a, 
um, basically uh, coronary catheterization with stent placement and have the balloon inflated to return uh, vascular or return blood flow to that area of the heart that's not getting enough blood, um, that time is supposed to be less than 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and it's just all in that same vein of thought of like time is tissue, like time totally determines outcome on this. So let's talk a little bit about coronary uh, catheterization. Yeah. Walk us through that a little bit. It's so, this is, this is really cool. (laughs) Oh yeah. It's, it's such a fascinating procedure to see. Um, you know, basically they introduce a little wire, um, into one of your arteries. Um, two most common places they'll introduce that wire is either, you know, an artery near your wrist called the radial artery or near your groin called the femoral artery. Yeah. If you wrap your, if you like put your fingers, draw a finger, draw a straight line down from your pointer finger down towards your elbow. And then you'll feel that radial pulse right there. That's the one that they go in. Yeah. And then they'll trace that uh, catheter kind of up the artery. Um, They get into your, you know, bigger and bigger arteries. And ultimately, they're able to pass that catheter into your, uh, you know, coronary artery system. So do they just do that blindly or like, how do they? Oh, no. So they do it with like real time imaging um, where they can... specifically see at all times up on a screen like where the catheter is and then you know that's really important because you never want to do something that's blind (laughs) cause all sorts of problems (laughs) so um once they get into the coronaries um they are able to see a few things with their real-time x-ray imaging which is called fluoroscopy yeah um so basically they just have like a targeted x-ray set up at the chest and then it's feeding continuous x-ray images um back to a screen that they can see so while all of the people are doing this procedure they're wearing lead vests and Mm -hmm. special glasses to shield themselves um from radiation yes it's a little bit eerie being in a room where you know that there's just like continuous x-ray beams flying around. Mm -hmm. Um, And so then they use a special radio opaque dye. So basically a dye that you can see on the uh, fluoroscopy that then shows where the blood is moving because the dye gets carried along with the blood. And then you basically have to memorize what the dye pattern is supposed to look like. Yeah. And then in your mind say okay what part of that picture that it's supposed to look like is it knocked out and that's where the clot is yeah and often you'll see that you know they'll inject the dye in real time and you see the dye go through the coronaries and you know the area that's you know being blocked or that's narrowed you'll see you know the dye go through a little stricture or not pass at all and usually within you know seconds are you know the interventional cardiologist can be like okay right there is where no, I think the, uh, no, the blockage is. And They're so good. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, so they'll do that. They'll pass the wire up. Sometimes they'll end up using that wire to pass them like a different wire mm-hmm. with a balloon on it. Yeah. And then they'll put the balloon, basically try to crush it through the plaque. Yeah, they basically <laughs> kind of wedge it in through that plaque and then they, um, They'll blow that balloon open so it stents, kind of crushes the plaque around it and then stents open that narrowing or that blockage. Yeah, it's basically like if you put your fist into something and then opened all your fingers up wide trying to push, mm-hmm. like open something up. Um, and then that returns blood flow to the to the yeah. tissue, hopefully saving that heart tissue and letting mm-hmm. it get oxygen again. 
um, which is the big thing that it's missing. So one of the complications um, that can come from a heart attack or from like ischemic damage to the heart over time is something that a lot of people uh, have a relative or know somebody who deals with uh, called heart failure. Um, So what's like in general, what's heart failure, Oyen? Yeah. So when I think of heart failure, I think of, you know, just the the ability of the heart to supply, you know, blood to the rest of our body, it's compromised in some way. And, you know, our heart isn't working at you know, our peak efficiency. Um, and, you know, that can be generally what we describe as heart failure. And there's even um, then the term heart failure, there's different parts of heart failure. You know, there's you know, two different chambers of the heart there's the left side there's the right side so some people can have failure of the left side of the heart some people can have failure of the right side of the heart some people can have failure of both sides um it's a really it's a really broad term but generally how i think of it is that you know the function of your heart to you know work efficiently and pump blood efficiently you know one side to the lungs and then the other side to the rest of your body is compromised in some way yeah exactly And um, basically the way that I think of it is like the heart is supposed to be pumping blood forward Mm -hmm. out. And, and I, I like, I think the easiest way to think of it is from the left side of the heart. So it should be pumping blood out away from the lungs and Mm -hmm. to the rest of the body. So if that's not happening efficiently, um, that means that, uh, one, you're not getting enough blood flow to the rest of the body, so that can cause um, like uh, a little bit of uh, venous stasis and uh, uh, fluid pooling in the lower extremities. So a lot of times people with long-standing heart failure, they'll have brownish spots on their legs and their legs will be all puffy from fluid that's pooling there. The brownish spots is actually deposited um, kind of blood. It's called hemosiderin deposits. Um and uh, the pool, uh, the pooled fluid, you can feel best if you just, you don't have to press very hard, but if you just apply continuous pressure over your shin bone, uh, even, even I, at the end of a long day of work, yeah. will have a little bit of edema is what it's called, mm-hmm. but people with heart failure will pretty continuously have, a, have edema. Usually. Yeah. And they'll often say that, you know, my legs feel really puffy or really swollen, um, and, you know, I'm not fitting into my socks anymore, or it's difficult for me to, like, get my shoes on. Those are some of the most common, I think, complaints that I've heard with people that eventually, you know, have heart failure. Yeah, and the other thing that they oftentimes get is pretty bad shortness of breath, and then oftentimes even develop an oxygen requirement, or really can't get enough oxygen mm-hmm. at all. Yeah. Um. So that part is kind of from the blood failing to move out of the lungs, and it kind of... Ex- we call extravates, extravates, extravates. Yeah. Um, or extravasates. Extravasates. There we, there we go. <laughs> where it moves outside of the, um, out of the uh, vessels and then kind of pulls in the soft tissue. So the lung is supposed to stay nice and wide open. It has these things called the alveoli, which are kind of sacs that um, allow the oxygen to move from the air into our blood. And if those get kind of like filled with fluid, that's something called pulmonary edema. And that's what happens if the fluid backs up basically from the heart to the lungs. Mm -hmm. So that's how people get short of breath. Yeah. Um, this kind of leads to a, uh, so first of all, just to circle back to what we see, uh, what we were talking about previously, 
the ultrasound is one of the best ways to look for this heart failure. And about half of cases of heart failure, um, we can see basically reduced heart squeeze. So if you open your hand up totally wide and then shut it into a fist, that's if we're saying that's what a normal heart squeeze is, maybe we see that it only closes 50% of the way. Um, So that's called reduced ejection fraction. Uh, and then there's other people who have difficulty with filling. So they have thickened kind of, uh, uh, heart, uh, ventricles that can't fill all the way with the right amount of blood. Um, so that's more heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Um, both of those can cause pretty much the same symptoms. And then there's all sorts of medications that are supposed to be started on. Unfortunately, not you, a lot of times not able to reverse the heart failure, but to prevent it from progressing. Yeah, no, it's really a fascinating disease and you know there's been so much progress that's been made you know with how we treat heart failure you know almost to think 50 60 years ago um people that had heart failure generally did not do very well but nowadays i think we all know someone that's had heart failure for decades yeah. and we have so many different medications that you know work on you know improving the function of the heart or improving um Know, minimizing some of the um, you know, things or some of those hormones that cause damage to the heart and have really shown to kind of prolong the life expectancy of people that have heart failure. Yeah, definitely. And some really exciting new medications even in the last few years. Yeah. Yeah. Entresto, mm-hmm. all these, all these ones. Jardians, that we hear, yeah, yeah. Jardians, <laughs> all the ones that we hear ads about on TV. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so expensive right now, but exciting. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. And I think those are kind of the big ones. This is kind of a question I've been asking everyone. Do you feel like, so for every specialty, I kind of ask, do you feel like cardiologists have a type of personality? How would you describe their personality? You know, it's interesting (laughs) when I, um, you know, when I was in medical school and I, as a fourth year, did a month of like, uh, you know, cardiology elective, kind of went into it thinking that, you know, my preconceived notion was that most cardiologists are very like intense, very stern, um, kind of serious, uh, get right to the point. And I actually realized that a lot of them, you know, crack the same jokes that I do or yeah. laugh at the same things are very yeah. easygoing. So I think I would say that the original kind of idea of the typical cardiologist was someone that was, no, very smart, but very serious, right, you know, right to the point, like, doesn't want you to beat it around the bush. But, you know, in reality, that's not uh, really the case. Yeah, I would say the biggest thing at Brown that I can use to lump all the cardiologists together is very hardworking. Oh, yeah. Super hardworking. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thanks for talking to us about the heart, Oyen. Um, we'll take our little mid-show break here, and then we'll jump back on the other side. So stay tuned, and thanks for listening to everybody. We'll be back in a few minutes. Well, over the break, I learned some very fascinating information about Oyen, which is he mentioned, I was, I was talking about the sound forms and stuff like that on the audacity. And he said, 
oh, I know all about that. I used to I used to have a podcast, an earth science podcast, which I knew nothing about. I had absolutely no idea. So Oyen's gonna look for the name of that podcast and we're gonna link it in the show notes description. <laughs> he doesn't know if it's up, but he says it probably is. What was the what was the platform that you were using, Oyen? Um I think I used I think I used iTunes to like um upload my podcast and I think I did like three episodes and then kinda um got busy with uh stuff and couldn't continue it but that's awesome do you remember any of the topics that you talked about i did one on the whale shark i do remember that one yeah and it was like around oh man it was i think it was around shark week oh it's like i had just gone to the aquarium and i like saw a giant whale shark i was like oh that's so cool no wonder you're such a natural guest (laughs) on this podcast you're an expert (laughs) I, I had a lot of fun doing it. Um, it's so fun podcasting. So then when you were like, oh, I got my own podcast and I want to you know, have you on the show, I was like, absolutely. This is great. <laughs> okay, awesome. Um, so for the second half of this show, I wanted to talk to you something, uh, talk to you about something, Oyan, that's in, that I learned about on Student Doctor Network as I was oh, perusing for topics. Yeah. <laughs> I know, yeah. You'll have to listen to the episode from last week. I talked with John Ho about some questions that student doctors had on mm. Student Doctor Network. But while I was perusing there, I learned that there is a new test that they're using during the medical school admissions process in some schools, not all schools. It's called the Casper test, though. Have you ever heard of this? I did. I think they had just rolled it out um, the year I was applying to medical school. So I remember having to do it. I oh, don't you rem- did do it? I did do one, yeah. Oh, wow. So, and you're the year below me, so I guess that would make sense because we, I had no idea that this existed. Essentially, what it is, is an it's, it's called, quote, an open response situational judgment test that evaluates professionalism and non-cognitive skills, such as collaboration, problem solving, ethics, and empathy. My understanding is that medicine gets a little bit of a bad rap for, we were just talking about how everyone is very hardworking and sometimes uh, to the point, maybe a little blunt. Some doctors, I think, can be criticized for not having the best people skills, which as we know in medicine is extremely important when we're trying to break bad news to people or develop good rapport with patients, good interpersonal, you know, uh, relationships with our coworkers, stuff like that. Stuff that the doctors of the seventies and eighties were notoriously bad at, I would mm-hmm. say, you know, not, not everyone, obviously, but I think it was a little bit of a stereotype that was laid upon that generation. So, um, I think in order to try to get trainees, um, who are strong in this area is you have to have a way to, to measure those skills. Um, and I think it goes, it kind of pairs hands, hand in hand. It it makes common sense. Uh, if you're going to try a way to objectively measure knowledge, um, there's, you know, you can at least try to find a way to objectively measure some of these, you know, quote unquote, soft skills. Um, so I was fascinated to kind of read more about this. Essentially, they give you a, they give you a prompt. They give you three questions kind of related to that prompt. Um, and, and then you have 
uh, a different person evaluate nine different basically prompts that they give you. Um, so that way it's supposed to be, you know, you don't just have one person who's totally roasting you and saying this person's a total noob. <laughs> <laughs> the way that they are responding to this, you know, is maybe they have, maybe there's one evaluator or somebody who's mm-hmm. not a very good, <laughs> not a very, <laughs> doesn't have a lot of soft skills themselves. So. <laughs> um, so while I was perusing student doctor at work, I found some practice cases for these Casper uh casper questions that i thought maybe we could take a look at those so the first one that we have is for anyone playing around playing along this is on student student doctor network it's from the user prep match um and this is the 23rd or 33rd question uh so this is the prompt you're skiing in the mountains i know owens is here so this (laughs) is a perfect one (laughs) You're skiing the mountains and and the snow is starting to get heavy. You decide to head back to the lodge when you think you hear a cry for help in the distance. The snow is falling hard and in about 20 minutes you will no longer uh, be able to see where the ski lodge is. So that's the prompt and then there are three questions that follow. One, should you investigate the sound you heard? Two, what are the ethics of this situation? Three, when is it okay to prioritize your safety over others? So as you can kind of tell from the prompt itself, there's vague parallels with medicine. You know, you're in a position of responsibility. Um, your actions affect other people, but in some cases, they also impact your uh, your own safety. So uh, examples of this in medicine are, you know, when you're uh, uh, taking care of somebody in the emergency department, you're not sure if they have COVID or not yet. Um you get exposed to uh, blood products through a you know needle stick injury or something like that, um, and sometimes the actions that you take uh, and the risk that you put yourself at will uh, directly impact the um, patient. Uh, so it's it's a tricky situation. Uh, do you want to take a do you want to take a stab at any of these, Oyan? So I'm yeah, just going to read sure. the, I'm going to read the first one again. Should you investigate the sound that you heard? Yeah, so I think what they're getting at is like you have someone that's kind of crying out for help and you know as a as a doctor like it's really hard to say no or like you know not not investigate or not help someone that's in need. And so you know I think in this situation if someone's crying out for help kind of, I wouldn't say you're obligated but like it I felt like it would be my duty to at least figure out know what's going on and you know where is it coming from and know you know what what happened to this person yeah i would say at least common sense dictates you know you want to go check out as much as you know within the realms of uh not putting yourself at additional risk there's some amount that you can investigate yeah so you have to weigh i mean you yourself are a person and this is skiing is a risky uh risky situation so I think uh, the person understands that they put themselves in danger yeah. by going out skiing. But at the same time, uh, it's kind of something that we want to do, as you said, to help out our fellow human beings. Yeah. Um, so if it's snowing for 20 minutes, you have at least 10 minutes, I would think, that you can yeah. go look for this other person to start with. Mm-hmm. Um, t- second question, what are the ethics of this situation? Yeah, I think this is kind of a tricky question in the sense that, you know, Ethically, you know, it's your responsibility and, you know, the situation to 
I would say at least investigate where this is coming from and you have 10 minutes, but then also at the same time, like, no ethically, you know, in this situation, like, are you by yourself or are you with your family or your kids skiing with you as well? Like you also, you know, you don't want to put your, you know, if you were skiing with your two little children, like you don't want to put them in a situation where, you know, now you're also lost and now you're, you're putting them, them at risk as well. And so it's kind of a hard balancing act. And, you know, we often, you know, we often see this in medicine happen all the time, you know, like what's the you know, right thing to do because each action has a consequence. Yeah. And it's kind of like, if you think to an airplane, like you're supposed to, you know, put the mask on yourself for oxygen mm-hmm. before you help someone else. Like yeah. right now in this situation, if you were to not look for the other person, um, you have one person yourself who is like not injured in this scenario and, uh, and one person who is an unknown, a kind of question mark. Yeah. Um, so, uh, there, some element of the ethics is this, of this as well is you don't want to put yourself at additional risk as well. Um, there are, I think some things that you can do that don't put yourself at risk that uh, do make a lot of sense to do that are, you know, beneficent to this patient or to this uh, skier, I should say. Yeah, like, I think a few things you could do is you could radio ski patrol or, you know, someone and let them know like, hey, I heard this voice crying out for help around this area. I'm not exactly sure, yeah, you know, where it is, but I think this, you, know, you should go investigate. And that way, you know, you've, you've told someone else that, you know, there's someone that needs help. But then you also haven't like put yourself at risk and in a situation where now you're also lost and or possibly injured. Yeah. Um, uh, Now it's two people that are lost as opposed to one. Two people that the ski patrol are dividing their resources amongst to go find, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think some and then for these questions, it seems to be from just doing a reading on a few of these practice questions. You know, creative thinking is encouraged. You could say something like you know, looking at my map and marking where I am in the direction that I heard the sound coming from is a, you know, a way that you could sort of notify, you know, making use of your critical thinking skills to give the ski patrol a direction to start looking. Um, uh, Yeah. So I think that's pretty good on the ethics. Yeah. That's a good question. I know. (laughs) And then the third one, when is it okay to prioritize your safety over others? Um, you know, I think in medicine, we often have a phrase like you can't take a, take care of others if you like don't take care of yourself. And yeah. you know, I think that rings so true in residency where, you know, you're, it's hard to take care of so many patients, you know, if you're not getting enough sleep or you're not eating well and, um, you know, you're not you know, generally taking care of yourself. So in this situation, like, you know, if you're not in a situation to help, like, you know, you're feeling extremely tired and you know you feel like you know you're probably done skiing you don't have much more in you like no it what would you do like if you put yourself in a situation now where you're also stuck and you know you're not able to you know get the help you need so I think we always as doctors we think about you know we want to do what's best for our patients and that's always what we should strive to do but we also need to make a concerted effort to take care of ourselves as well. Cause otherwise we can't deliver good care. Yeah, exactly. And it, I, I think one way to think about this is thinking about not only your patients right now, not only this gear right now, but the people that you're going to be taking care of in the future too. Mm-hmm. 
you can't do that if you're, you know, crippled by, um, you know, uh, uh, mental, mental health kind of issues that you haven't been able to address because you're not taking care of yourself yeah. or, or physical health for mm-hmm. that, for that matter as well. Um, yeah, I feel wow. I think we got ten out of ten on that one. I think we got all the points. I think, I think we would get in. <laughs> so someone would accept us. We would probably be in the middle. <laughs> um, okay, this this next one I thought was a really good one too. Your company installs kitchen cabinets. Mrs. Robinson calls you one day saying that one of your workers was sick while working in her house. This worker infected the entire family. One, what do you say to Mrs. Robinson? Two, who, if anyone, is at fault? And then three, should you charge clients higher costs if you start implementing more personal protective equipment, for example, masks, in the workplace? All right, you very kindly took a stab at the first one, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take first stab at these ones. So I think the first thing is, what do you say to Mrs. Robinson? And I just can't help but think of all the times, Oyen and I were on the same floor this last month, and all the times that you walk into a room and a patient is just livid with you mm-hmm. for something that uh, may or may not be personally your fault, which is kind of this situation. You know, it's one of your workers. You supervise them. The buck kind of stops with you. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, you are not, uh, you know, the one who's in there doing all of these actions. So I think you have to say, wow, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry that our employee came in to work while he was sick. Uh, this is something that definitely we, you know, this may or may not be true in the situation, but um, our our company, in, you know, encourages employees to call out of work if they're sick and for the reasons of not uh, infecting either each other or obviously the customers as well. Um, so I can only really apologize that this happened and take like a hundred percent responsibility for it. Yeah. So I think that's probably one of the things is like just owning up to the situation and taking responsibility for what your employee did, who is ultimately like your indirect responsibility. And I think this is a quality I've seen with some of the, you know, best attending doctors that I've worked with where, you know, as residents we all we all make mistakes and things things will happen that you know sometimes are out you know out of our control sometimes in our control but you know mistakes happen and you know the best attending doctors i've seen are always the ones that you know don't throw the trainee or the uh you know the you know don't throw someone else under the bus but you know take responsibility for it say you know i'm sorry that this happened i'm sorry oyan was such an idiot (laughs) (laughs) um yeah no i i agree with you 100 percent. the the healthcare system is a team and you have to take responsibility as a team for your wins and your losses so um i think the second thing is that you can't you can't stop there. You can't only apologize. You have to say, take that second step and say, what can I do to make it right? Mm-hmm. You know, obviously it's um to have your health put at risk is a huge thing. Your health is one of the most important things in life. So um is there anything I can do to help make this situation right? Yeah. Which I think kind of leads into some of the other the other questions here. So maybe we'll keep moving. So two, who, if anyone, is at fault? This is a trick question. Yeah. I think Mrs. Robinson is at fault for her. <laughs> no. <laughs> she has a better immune system. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I I think uh, the main thing that we have to say is that 
like this is your this is your company. Um, so ultimately, you are responsible for training your employees. You set the policies at your company, yeah. and you lead by example for better or for worse. Um, so I I think ultimately uh, we have to take responsibility for this and for the for the actions of our employees. And it's the same way in the healthcare yeah. system. You don't get anywhere by passing the buck to anybody else, and it just makes you look like an incohesive team to yeah. your patients. And you know, I think there's a lot of parts to this. Like, you know, he asked my employee came in where he you know where he was sick, but you know, was he having symptoms at that time mm. or he, did he know he was sick or did he not know if he was sick um you know if he if he knew he was sick but still came into work you know why why did he choose to do that you know maybe our company needs to you know look back at our sick policy and you know see if there's you know anything that could be changed or improved there maybe he felt like you know he couldn't you know, take a day off of work because of, you know, financial issues or family issues, you know, combination of a lot of different things, you know, the, I think ultimately, I would say that, you know, as you said, the company is at fault because, you know, it represents us at a whole. Um, there's probably many different factors that, you know, ultimately led to this, you know, this happening. Yeah. I'm just kind of struck by the fact as we're talking about this, how different this would be if this was like a legal drama. Mm -hmm. How could you, how could you prove that he was sick? How do you know, Mrs. Robinson? Did you test him while he was there? (laughs) (laughs) You just have to take for granted. You have to kind of give this test some, uh, uh, you have to give it some slack a little bit and just assume the stuff that they're telling you is true. Yeah. And especially like in this day and age and, you know, bring up the C word COVID-19, like how many times have we heard that, someone maybe felt a little tired in the morning or like didn't realize they were sick. And then only three days later find out that they have COVID. And then like another couple days later, like everyone in the family does. Yeah. And then you realize that you recorded a podcast for 50 minutes. Thanks to that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No, no, that's absolutely so true though. Um, Okay. And then three, should you charge clients higher costs if you start implementing more personal protective equipment like masks in the workplace? This is really the way to get vindictive with Mrs. Mm-hmm. Robinson. Well, how would you like if that if that cabinet repair cost $55 instead of $54? Yeah, $55 <laughs> plus another $20 for the PAPR. <laughs> <laughs> PAPR is a positive error positive pressure airway like thing it's basically you should google it. it's p-a-p-r if you typed in like p-a-p-r COVID you guys have ever like, watched the movie like outbreak or yeah. contagion or any like lethal virus movie ever it's those big suits and the, yeah. with the the big plastic looking pipe that's coming out of there <laughs> you know the back of their hood that fascinatingly um so when uh in the workplace uh Especially at the beginning of COVID, everyone was required to wear N95s basically the whole workday mm-hmm. because all of our work areas are common spaces where there's like, you know, five computers in a room and none of them are six feet apart. So um, one of the issues that I heard about there was um, a gentleman who, for re- religious reasons, um, couldn't or didn't want to shave his beard. Mm-hmm. Um, and then basically uh, the N95 masks don't work with, you know, definitely not that amount of facial hair, but really it's, you know, a pretty small amount of facial hair they don't work for. So, you know, 
some I I always had a little bit of facial hair before residency, and now I'm totally clean. I'm just <laughs> a total egghead, <laughs> bald on the top and on the end on the beard. <laughs> but um, but one of the things that you could do to get around this uh, this papper mask uh, was allowable. So sometimes you see guys, especially going around <laughs> in this big uh, big mask. Um, you know, and it looked like just a scene from Alien or like yeah. space. Space. Like one of the funniest videos I saw at the beginning of COVID was, you know, I remember the day the uh, the entire NBA shut down because <laughs> of COVID, and everyone was like, "Well, how are we going to play ball now?" And then like someone posted a video of two people playing one on one against each other <laughs> in pure in pappers. It's just one of the funniest things I That's saw. That's hilarious. <laughs> That's so funny. I'll see if I can find that and link that in the description. Um. Yeah, so Oyen's gonna charge twenty twenty to twenty thousand extra dollars for paper equipment. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, this is an interesting question, though. I think uh, yes. I mean, yeah, I think you are allowed to charge some extra costs, especially in like uh, depends on what your business does. If it's a luxury thing like cabinet services, for instance, I think you're totally within your rights. You have a increased business costs. You ought to pass that some of that at least along to the to the customers yeah. um which i think gets reflected in how we adjust insurance reimbursement rates for procedures that become you know or medications that become more expensive the heart, the hospital charges different prices for that your yeah. business can't survive if you don't uh take into account the costs um that you're operating under um so that's just a practicality i don't think there's anything ethically wrong with that unless this is an essential service that mm-hmm. your business is providing, i.e., I don't know, water pipe repair or something like that. Um, you know, heating, heating repair, uh, which in New England um, is a necessity during the winter. So if it's something that is truly required, then um, I think it's a little bit more of a nuance, <laughs> i.e., healthcare. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit more of a nuanced um, discussion. And maybe that's where like sliding scale costs uh, come into play where, um, you know, the cost of the visit is adjusted based off the person's income. But mm-hmm. how do you practically implement that in a smaller industry, not in healthcare? Uh, yeah. is a difficult discussion. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I kind of, everything kinda, you said, yeah. I kind of took that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you can see how, you know, we're now people who have, uh, you know, eight, like almost, you know, six, seven years of experience in medicine and are well versed in these conversations. Uh, I cannot even imagine answering this going into, uh, you know, I guess going into medical school, uh, for, for instance, I'm not yeah. sure if this is medical school or residency, but, um, going into medical school, I would have had almost no idea how to answer these questions. But yeah, and I think it's really hard to judge, you know, someone for admission for medical school based on these questions, um, you know, especially for people that are coming out of undergrad. And it's yeah. like these are really challenging questions, and there's yeah. you know, kind of a lot to take into place. And, yeah. You know, if someone you know answers something that you know one of the reviewers thinks is wrong or um know doesn't agree with does that make that applicant like an unethical person and i would say no like yeah they just don't have life experience yeah (laughs) it's and no even now at like seven years into six seven years into our training like these are still tough questions and there's like no really right answer or wrong answer well i think we can agree ours were right yeah ours were definitely 100 right but no no it's yeah it's (laughs) 
All right. Uh, well, usually at the end of the show is where we give a little bit of mm, recommendations or something about a show we've been watching or something. Oyan and I, I happen to know, have watched a show in common together recently. Redeem Team. Mm, the Redeem great. Team yeah. on Netflix. <laughs> so I heard about this from one of my buddies. And uh, uh, essentially what it is, is the story of the 2008 mm-hmm. Olympic team, I believe. U.S. Yeah. Men's Basketball Olympic team. Um, and their story of how they recovered from a really bad showing at the 2004 olympics yeah no it was a really really great documentary and i think it really highlighted how in 2004 the u.s came in third place they had lost to argentina in the semifinals of the uh of the olympics and you know i think what a lot of the documentary highlighted was that you know basketball we all know originated in the americas and you know, going into those Olympics, the you know U.S. had I think won the majority of the uh, you know the Olympic gold medals, and there was a sense of like elitism and a sense of you know we're better than the rest of the world. And then you know the U.S. played really poorly in the 2004 Olympics and ultimately came in third place. And then how from that on the U.S. you know basketball program had to. You know, not only adapt and realize that, you know, the rest of the world is getting better and that we have to respect our opponents, but, you know, also how do we build that culture of winning back up? And no, I, I thought it was really great. Yeah. Great documentary. Direct parallel with the Doughboys intramural basketball mm-hmm. team. We have to respect our opponents. We can't think that we're going to decimate them just because they're short. <laughs> I think we realized that like seven minutes into the game. <laughs> <laughs> um so my my question from you for you is this uh oyan kobe or lebron oh i think oh man that's a tough question (laughs) um i think what i really liked about that documentary was just like how much of a you know how much of a maniac kobe was towards his craft like (laughs) i think they talked about how after like the opening ceremony or something everyone else had like gone out to go like party and celebrate and kobe was in the gym at like 2 a.m yeah like working on his game and like the interventional cardiologist of basketball mm -hmm. (laughs) honestly like sometimes i do feel like parallels in between some of the people that i see like how hard they go at medicine and how hard some people are like i I mean he's i think he was in the gym at 5 a.m in the morning but you know what neurosurgeons they're five like yeah at least 5 a.m and probably they're later too (laughs) yeah and you know as an interventional cardiologist like you know someone has a heart attack in the middle of the night like you're not gonna not go in there kobe's not getting called to the court at 2 a.m yeah (laughs) he's not getting called in beep beep kobe i gotta you gotta come make this three-pointer at 1 30 in the morning (laughs) Kobe, we gotta gotta, go. You gotta go. We got an inferior STEMI here. Like, (laughs) we gotta go dunk this stent into the door to door to to court time. Ninety minutes. (laughs) We can't. We can't top that. We can't top that quote. We're just gonna shut it down right here. I'm Griffin Reed. This was 
Oyen Perkass, that was a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thank you much. Thank you so much, Oyen. I do want to give a big shout out. Thank you, John Sib, for the music for this show, his song Rock. And don't forget that if you want to get some questions on the show, you can email me at docdocpod at gmail.com. That's D-O-C-D-O-C-P-O-D at gmail.com. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.